0: First service, they talked for five minutes after worship. That's okay. We're here. And excited to get into God's Word. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 14 this morning, finishing up the book of 1 Peter. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Greg's got a bunch in his hand. He can bring one to your seat so you can follow along with us. First Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 14. Sounds like you're all there. Let's read it together. Starting in verse 5, Peter writes, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. By Sylvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. The title of my study this morning is Hope for the Harassed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to to be able to have your word opened on our laps, knowing that your Holy Spirit is here, desiring to teach our hearts, to show us something we don't know, show us something we have, perhaps we do know that we need to be reminded of, maybe to encourage us, to convict us. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to do the work that you want to do in our lives this morning. We pray that we would have a tent of ears to receive all that you have for us today. We ask your blessing upon the teaching that's going on with our children downstairs, that you'd speak to their hearts as well through the word being taught. We pray also, Lord, if there's anyone that has joined us as yet to surrender their hearts and life to you, to to be born again, Lord, would you you especially touch their heart this morning. So we thank you for this time we committed to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last time together, we looked at the role of the pastor, as Peter called them, shepherds. We're to shepherd the flock of God, which is among you. Well, I was thinking about that and talking to Pastor Dennis about, you know, when he was out, about what I'm teaching on. And, and he decided to show me this video. And his caption reads, When Sheep Fight Back. And so I want to show it to you this morning. See, sometimes, sometimes pastors, shepherds get knocked down by the sheep. It's a part of the job. And we looked at a couple weeks ago how important it is for anyone in leadership really to have the heart of the shepherd regardless of you know, how they're treated, having the focus on feeding the flock of God and, and leading by example and serving one another. But listen, one of the major themes throughout the book of 1 Peter is that of enduring through suffering. 21 times in this letter, Peter addresses that subject of suffering. And he has written to them already, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So he's writing to a group of people who are feeling the pain of suffering. And when suffering is present, good leadership should also be present, especially those who will be feeding the flock. But the church needs something else. Not only does it need good leaders, it needs good followers. Because suffering, we know, can bring out the worst in people. The worst attitudes and actions. Suffering can produce bad sheep. Okay? I'm just saying. And, and bad sheep can have bad behaviors. And, and tempers can flare, and irritations will mount, and accusations will fly, and, and you know, pride will rear its ugly head, and you know, like in the video, come charging out one another, and, and it's just not good. That's why Peter turns his focus here from the shepherds to the sheep and shows us three things, if you're taking notes. Number one, humility. Number two, harassment. And number three, hope. First, humility. Look at verse 5. Peter writes... Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I read a story about a young woman who came to her pastor and said, Pastor, I have a besetting sin in my life and and I need your help. When I come to church on Sunday, I can't help but think that I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation and I know that's a sin and I know I shouldn't think that way, but I can't help it. Can you help me, Pastor? The pastor replied, Mary, don't worry about about it. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. (laughs) Many times we make the same horrible mistake of not seeing ourselves realistically. And we can have a much higher opinion of ourselves. And when we do, it affects not only our relationship with other people, but our attitude about the church and about the body of Christ. That's why Peter writes here in verse 5, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Now apparently the younger men in the various churches to whom Peter was writing to were struggling with submitting to the the God-appointed leaders and elders in the church. They had a higher opinion of themselves than they ought to have. But what's interesting is the term younger people literally means recently born again, or young in the faith. So these were new believers having struggles, you know, submitting to the older leadership in the church. Now, I've noticed over the years that when churches go through times of difficulties and and the atmosphere can become very volatile, and often, not always, but often, I've noticed that the new believers are the one that suffers the, the most. Because they don't really understand that love covers a multitude of sins. And they don't really grasp that that humility is the key to holiness. And instead, they want to stand up and let their opinions be known. And, and really, their flesh gets the best of them. That's why I believe Peter is saying, likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to the elders. Now, Peter spoke on a lot of the subject of submission so far back in chapter 2. Verse 13, he writes, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Chapter 2, verse 18, he said, servants be submissive to your master's. Chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Wives, submit to your husbands. Chapter 3, verse 22, Peter writes about angelic beings being in subjection to uh, Christ, to Jesus Christ. In other words, submission is a part of every single realm of life because submission is a foundational attitude for all of life. Listen, you can't be saved without submission. Did you know that? Because to be saved, you're submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You're surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. You're saying, Lord, take control of my life. I surrender to you. I will follow you wherever you lead. So to shepherds of a church or elders in the church, Peter says to the younger believers, submit yourself to them, to your elders. You see, the elders, they were—they were, uh, to these young believers, they needed to know that the leaders were looking out for them. Now, I don't know if your child did this or not. I, I think most of them do. When we look out for our kids, when we warn them, you know, we, we say things like, well, well, don't cross the street without looking both ways. What's their first response? Why? Why, you know? Well, because at one point in time, someone did not look both ways when they crossed the street, and, and serious harm was done. We warned them, don't put that whole piece of candy in your mouth at one time. Their response, Why? Well, because somewhere in time, uh, someone did that, and, and we have kids choke on candy. So Peter says, listen, if they're going to warn you about certain things, respect what they have to say, listen to them, submit to them. Why? Because they've been there. They know what's going on. They've, they've been in the battle a lot longer than you, and they're watching out for you. See, these elders knew what these new believers would go through as they begin to walk with Christ. They knew that giving their life to Christ meant that they would it would be quite different. You're not going to be able to hang around with the same crowds that you used to hang around with. You, 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 know, you may become the black sheep of the family. A division may take place in your home. There, there's going to be this immediate uncomfortableness between the world and your newfound new life in Christ. You suddenly find yourself now with a biblical worldview that, that brings complete conflict to the worldview today. Now, for the younger people, younger believers, during Peter's day, it, it meant serious persecution Physical persecution. So Peter's saying, listen to your leaders. They're looking out for you. They've experienced things that you haven't experienced yet. So look to them. You know, Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. I like what J. Vernon McGee writes. He says, If your pastor is a man of God who is teaching the Word of God, then you are to obey the word of God as he has given it to you. It would be better for you not to hear the word of God than to hear it and not obey it. It's unprofitable for you. That's why Peter says, submit yourself to your elders. Now, this is in no way suggesting that the older church members run the church. You know, they never have to listen to the younger members. All too often, new believers will see something in God's Word that you've never looked at before. I don't know if you've ever spoken with a, a new believer and they're digging in God's Word and they're excited about something and they bring it to you. Hey, I want to show you this verse. Look at it and listen to this. And all of a sudden you're going, wow, I've not read, been a Christian for 35 years, 40 years. I've never read that before. And you get excited with them because all of a sudden they showed you something that, that maybe you've never seen before. So you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to be closed off to, to, to new believers. Listen, we're never too old to stop receiving from the Lord working and moving in another person's life. But too often there's this generational war going on in the church with the older people resisting change and the younger people resisting the older people. And and, and That's why Peter goes on to say, look at verse 5, Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. See, Peter's not only in a... Covering the new believers and their attitudes, he's saying, "Listen, all of you, whole church," he says. You know, it brings it all together. Uh, uh, you know, have a, a humility. See, because I have found that older believers can also forget that love covers a multitude of sins. I I have found out that uh, that older believers can forget that humility is the key to holiness, and instead they want to stand up and their opinions known, and really their flesh gets the best of them. That's why Peter groups us all together. All of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. Now, again, we can never be submissive to one another unless we first are submissive to Christ, uh, first and foremost to God. If you have a hard time submitting to God, then you're going to have an even harder time submitting one to another. But you see, one of the distinguishing marks of the Christian life is that there is a mutual submissiveness that is present. It's raking ourselves others. It's looking at people better than ourselves. It's a hard attitude that says, "How can I build uh, my my brother up, or help my sister in the Lord to build them up? How can I encourage them, not tear them down? Because even though I may may know more than them, what what can I do to help them?" It's that that attitude that is in direct contrast to what we see in the world today, right? Don't we see in the world today doggy dog? You know, it doesn't matter who you have to step over as long as you reach it to the top of the ladder. You know, we want to get ahead in life, but the church we're to be examples of those who take the lower place. So others can be exalted or built up or rewarded. That's what humility is. That's what it means when when Peter says, be clothed with humility. In other words, let a humble heart and humble actions be the clothing that covers your life. I like what D.L. Moody once said, be humble or you'll stumble. It's true. Listen, pride is the oldest sin in the universe and it shows no signs of weakening with age. It, It seems to get stronger and stronger. It was pride that put Lucifer out of heaven. It was, it was pride that put Adam and Eve out of the garden. It's, it's, pride, it's pride that ruins everything that it touches. I like the way Charles Spurgeon put it. He says, Pride is so natural to fallen man that it springs up in his heart like weeds in a watered garden. It is an all-pervading sin and smothers all things like dust in the roads or flour in the mill. Pride is hard to get rid of. If killed, it revives. If buried, it's burst open the tomb. You may hunt down this fox and think you have destroyed it. And, lo, your very exaltation is pride. Pride is a sin with a thousand lives. It seems impossible to kill it. It flourishes on that which should be its poison. glorying in its shame, it's a sin with a thousand shapes. By perpetual change, it escapes capture. To die to pride himself, one would need to die himself. Whoa. But he nailed it, you know. And I would say this, spiritual pride is the worst. The danger of spiritual pride lurks behind many of the strong convictions that we have and, and, and the heated debates we often get involved in, whether in Bible studies or, or social media or, or just in times of fellowship. And we're passionate about, about something and, and it goes from just a conversation to this, to this, this is heating up. And, and, and those of us who are passionate about studying and understanding God's Word inevitably form convictions. We form form convictions in areas such as predestination and the roles of men and women and the use use of alcohol and, and end times and a host of other topics. And convictions are a good thing, assuming we're conveying them to others in a humble, loving manner. Now, don't get me wrong. I wholeheartedly agree that correct doctrine is important. We are to handle the Word of God with diligence and care. But the attitude we carry with us as we make our convictions known or teach them to others, has the power to draw people to the Lord or to push them away from the Lord. And I don't think it pleases the Lord when we bulldoze others with, with truth without necess- the necessary ingredients of love and humility. And just because someone may not share my view on predestination or free will or assurance of salvation or eschatology, the study of times, doesn't make them my enemy. It just makes them having a different view than what I believe the Bible teaches. But all too often, our pride gets in the way. And we destroy friendships and fellowship because of that, that pride. And it just shouldn't be. The late John Stott put it this way. Pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Humility is cure. Humility heals everything that pride destroys. Let me say this. Humility is found in, in the strangest places. I, I recently read an article about when uh, uh, President Ronald Reagan was shot. What impressed me both uh, about this article was, was President Reagan's humor, but, but it really was, a, a it was deeply rooted in his humility. You probably heard what uh, Reagan said to the doctors before going into surgery. He said, I hope you're all Republicans. <laughs> Or what uh, uh, the president said when his wife Nancy arrived at the hospital. Honey, I forgot to duck. But even more impressive than Reagan's sense of humor was his humility. As as the doctors hovered over him and discussing his risky situation, the president politely interrupted, I don't mean to trouble you, but I'm still having a hard time breathing. I don't mean to trouble you, I mean, if anyone had the right to trouble anybody for special treatment, it would have been the president, I mean, Reagan. But the president, he didn't assume rights. He simply wasn't impressed with himself. He was generally modest about his accomplishments. In fact, when he was recovering in the hospital and a nurse walked into his room, instead of finding President Reagan in the bed recovering, she found President Reagan on on his knees, wiping up water off the floor with a towel, and she was shocked. And she said, Mr. President, we have people for that stuff. But President Reagan explained that he didn't want a nurse or an aide getting in trouble for not cleaning up spilled water in the bathroom. Amazing. It just shows the type of humility that he had. And as a good example of of President Reagan was, we're to look to Jesus because he is the classic, he is a perfect example of humility. Jesus laid aside the robes of his glory and came clothed like common man so that he might reach men and women with the love of God. That's why Peter says we need to be clothed with humility. Because he saw firsthand what the Lord did for him. Well, then Peter gives us a very good reason for being clothed with humility. He says in verse 5, quoting Proverbs 3, verse 34, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, I think that's a pretty good reason to to humble ourselves. I don't know about you, but the last thing I want is God to be resisting me. I want, I need God's help, you know, not His resistance. You know that word resist it, there is, is interesting. It's a military term meaning to be opposed to. It depicts a full army ready for battle. So what this is suggesting is that Peter is saying that, that God is in full battle array, as it were, against the proud. Listen, pride is a sin from which many other sins spring. Pride is the starting point. I mean, think about this. Pride is often at the core of lying, of bearing a false witness. Because, well, if I tell the truth and if I say the way things really are, then, then this person's going to think less of me, and so I just need to embellish it a bit. Embellish? It's a lie. Many murders and fights that are a direct reaction from someone's pride being wounded. That's why the best defense is a good offense when it comes to pride two plays in particular. Number one, we need to be reminded continually of our own weaknesses and our own frailties in order to see our great need and dependence upon God. And number two, to think of others better than yourself. We need to be reminded of our own weaknesses. I'm reminded of a story of a young preacher who preached a a message to a congregation on a special occasion and, and God Richly blessed the message and it hit, hit with great impact. And the young man really enjoyed the, the obvious appearance of success. And, and afterwards, he's on his way home with his wife and, and still kind of glowing over the whole thing and thinking, you know, how powerful ministry he had and, and you know, and, and seeking his own heart. So he says to her, well, I wonder how many great preachers there are in the world. And his wife turned and replied, Well, one less than you think. Why has a w- has a way. I, man, you know this. Wife has a way of reminding us, you know, just how we truly are. Listen to stay humble. We need to re- be reminded of our weaknesses, and we, we need to remember what God's word says. Let me give you a few verses. Romans twelve three, for I say through the grace given to me to everyone who's among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each man a measure of faith. Or Second Corinthians three five. Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. One more, Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Then the second best defense against pride is, is to think of others better than yourself. Let me give you a couple of verses. 1 First, First Corinthians 10, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. And then Philippians 2, verse 3 and 4, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I mean, That's the key. You know, let each one of you esteem others as being better than yourself. Look out for the other person's well-being. How does that happen? By simply realizing that every single person around you Every single person you meet is better than you in some way or at something. I mean think about it like that because when you start to look around you and you decide that it's a blessing to know them in some way, then you can't look at yourself with so much pride now my my natural carnal mind doesn't want to work that way. My carnal mind wants to find fault with the person next to me so I can feel better about myself to find Fought with a person who who I may think is is more spiritual than me so I can say, well, see, that person isn't so spiritual as he thinks he is. Paul says, no. He says, let each esteem others better than himself. And as we begin to develop that that mindset that we're privileged to be with everyone around us, the result will be love and joy that's unstoppable. But it can't be done apart from our dependence upon the Lord day by day, moment by moment. Therefore, Peter says in verses 6 and 7, therefore, humble yourselves... Under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. I can't read that verse without thinking about the story in the Old Testament about Naaman, the great you know, general from Syria, a great war hero, man of fame and fortune, loved by the people. But Naaman had a problem. He was a leper. He had an incurable disease, a, a state of living death where your body literally you know, begins to rot and die. And Naaman could not get rid of this disease. But he heard that there was this prophet in Israel who could help him. So, Naaman God in his chariot, no doubt traveling with his entourage, you know, the big, you know, all the, the limo chariots coming along, and and he made his way, his journey to the prophet. Elisha pulls up into the, his house, and you know, and, and expecting Elisha to come out and maybe with this dramatic healing and blessing, maybe he will hit, hit him on his head and he falls backwards on the ground and be healed, you know, something like that. It, it didn't happen. Instead, Elisha sends out a servant and says. Go down to the river and dunk yourself seven times, uh, Jordan River, dunk yourself seven times and your le- leprosy will be gone. Naaman's gone. <laughs> are you kidding me? I mean, the, the, the Jordan River? I mean, I, I wouldn't, I mean, uh, it's disgusting. It's gross. I'd go back to Syria. We have much better bodies of water than, than Jordan. And he's starting to leave and, and Naaman's servant says, Naaman, why, why are you being so high and mighty over this? What if he's right? What do you have to lose? I'll tell you why Naaman didn't want to do it. Because in order to be healed and follow the prophet's prescription, he would have to peel off all of his armor and show his true condition. That's humiliating. But that's the way God designed it. Because before you can expect God to move mightily in your life, we have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And the great Naaman walked down and he peeled his gleaming armor and took off his wonderful garments And he was exposed for what he was, a man with leprosy. And he walked down to that water and he immersed himself. One, two, three, four, five, six, nothing happened. Seventh time, goes down, comes up, and and his skin was like that of a little baby. But he had to humble himself first. If we want to be blessed, it begins with humbling ourselves and admitting that we have a need. Jesus put it this way in Luke fourteen eleven: Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you and due time. That's what God wants. God wants you to walk humbly with your God. In other words, trust God enough with your life so that you don't live for people's affirmation, but you're willing to wait for God's exaltation. Humbling yourself before God means submitting to his ways and wisdom as revealed from his word. It means accepting the circumstances that God allows in your life, no matter how difficult that may be, because you believe and know that God is sovereign in everything. And despite your struggles and your suffering, God is in control. And God is in control so that He may exalt you in due time. And the key, of course, is in due time. God never exalts anyone until that person is ready for it. First the cross, then the crown, first the suffering, then the glory. I mean, think about it. Moses was under God's hand for 40 years before God sent him to deliver the Jews from Egypt. Or or, or Joseph was under God's hand for at least 13 years before God lifted him to the throne. So one of the evidences of pride in our lives is our impatience with God. And one of the reasons for suffering is that we might learn patience. And that's why Peter leads us to verse 7 when he says, We're to be casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Listen, you never cast all your cares upon Him if you think that you can handle every situation. If you think you can handle all the cares yourself. I love the way the Amplified Bible puts verse 7. Casting the whole of your cares, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all on Him, for He cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. Now I know this may be hard for some of you to believe, but God is not overwhelmed by your life. You may be, but He's not. He's not pacing back and forth in heaven over your problems. His hair is not falling out or turning gray because of the struggles and obstacles that you're going through right now. He's in control. In fact, the Lord says in Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? So then why are we holding on to those cares? Why are you not casting them to the Lord? It makes no sense. Cast all your cares upon Him. He cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. And this brings us to our second point of why we should be casting all our cares upon Him because we're being harassed. Point number two. Harassment. Because if we do all those things, humbling ourselves before the Lord, looking to others is better than yourselves. And if we're casting all our cares upon the Lord because we know He cares for us, guess what? Satan is not going to be too happy about that at all. That's why Peter says, be prepared to be harassed. Look at verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Listen, folks, the devil is real, not only because we read it in God's Word, but we've seen it. We see it in the world, and we've seen it just recently in this world. All you have to do is look what happened in in Parkland, Florida last Wednesday. Fourteen students, three teachers, 17 in all were gunned down by a 19-year-old who claimed, get this claim, demons told him to do it. I believe it. The governor of Florida described the incident as pure evil. We need to be praying for the families and the friends of those that lost loved ones. But let me tell you, the devil is real. The evidence is overwhelming. That's why Peter says, be vigilant. Be sober, because he does exist. You know, he's not chained, He's not bound for a thousand years. We're not in the millennium. He's hard at work seeking to destroy all that God loves. And that's why he tells us to be sober. So say, well, I got that one covered. You know, I, I'm not drunk. Well, <laughs> it's a good thing you're not drunk, okay? But it doesn't mean to not be intoxicated. It's used here metaphorically to speak of being mentally and spiritually sober. Be sober-minded, some translations say. It means to be self-controlled, disciplined, to think clearly about what's going on. Now certainly alcohol can make you lose control and not be able to think clearly, but this goes much further than soberness to alcohol. Let me translate it how I think the intention is. Don't allow yourself to be intoxicated by the amusements of this world. Be sober-minded. The Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. And we get intoxicated. Well, a little bit of pleasure here. Well, that's kind of neat. And and we get pulled into that. Instead, we need to be sober-minded. I've said this many times, the battle always begins in our minds. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. That's why we need to be on guard. We need to to watch what we think about. Be sober. Paul talks about that in Philippians 3, to think on whatever things are true, whatever things are are good report, whatever things are are, are pure. Think on these things. We have to think clearly, Peter says. Be sober. Then he says, be vigilant. It means to be alert be on the lookout, to, to, on, uh, to be watchful. Don't fall asleep on the job. Now, when I think of that, I think of Peter, James, and John there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and, and Jesus said, you know, hey, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. What happened? Jesus came back, and they're sound asleep. You know, Peter's going, hey, I learned from my mistakes. Stay awake. Be vigilant. Stay awake. Watch out for attacks in your weak areas. Now, you know what they are. You know, I, I know what my... Weak areas are. Watch out for that. Watch out that you don't get in a compromising position or a situation where you'll be more apt to yield than to resist. Watch out. Watch out for what else? Well, your adversary, Peter says. Now, I want you to notice in verse 8 that the word adversary is not generic. Peter doesn't say that there, there is an adversary, but he says he's your adversary. In other words, the devil and his demons are out to get you personally and harass you and make your life miserable. Now, thankfully, God's Word says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And God will not allow anything to happen to you that isn't going to be used for your good. But that doesn't change the fact that you have a personal adversary out to get you, to harass you. We have a... a, a The devil commands a demonic realm, but his theater of operations of that demonic realm is this world, the human world. So this is what we're dealing with. We have an invisible army in a visible world. I mean, it's pretty tough, isn't it? You know, if you're a Star Trek fan, think about it. It's a massive cloaking device for Klingons. You know, and, and they're, they're out there and they're ready to attack you and, and, and you don't see them, you don't know where they're at, but, you know. He's active all over the world. He's active to deceive. Now you may ask, well, why is he picking on me? Well, the biggest reason is because of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the real target, not you, but the only reason he would ever go after you to get to him is because he hates Jesus, and because Jesus loves you, Satan hates anything that God loves. He's always against the gospel, he's always against Jesus, and, he's, and, and because you love Jesus, you are his number one target. He is your adversary. And right now he's plotting, and he's planning, and he's strategically attempting to devour your life, as verse 8 tells us. So that word devour there in the original language means he wants to gulp it down, swallow it up entirely, destroy his target. And he's described as a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. You know, it's a picture of this, this huge lion just going back and forth in a cage, you know, just, just ready to, to destroy something. And here's Satan looking to bring you down. I think of, of, uh, In Job, chapter 1, verse 6, when it says that the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was with them, and the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Listen to his his answer. From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. In other words, he was out and about just looking for another life to ruin and more problems to create. That's the devil for you and me. Like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, I've never heard an actual I've mean, heard it on, on movies and TVs, but never actually in person with a, a roaring lion to hear it. You know, I've never seen a lion devour a prey. But in the same family, we once had a family cat, Tinkerbell, that in the end just tinkled everywhere, but that's another story. But I have witnessed Tink the cat seek to devour a mouse, at least I think so, because if you've ever watched that happen, cats don't kill the mouse right away, do they? They kind of swat it around a little bit, knock it up in the air, comes back down again, waiting for it to run away so they can pounce on it again. Then they pounce on it, they swat it all over again, uh, enough to hurt it but not kill it yet. Then the mouse will just sit still, not move, not sure what to do, and the cat will leave it alone for a second. And the mouse thinks, I I might get away. If I sit still, maybe the cat will go away. But you know cats, they've got nothing to do all day but to sit there and and do nothing. (laughs) Nothing. And it's obsessed for the moment. They're willing to wait a lifetime for that mouse just to make one more little move. And the cat will appear that its attention is someplace else. But in the corner of its eye, it sees it. And that mouse thinks, ah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And he takes off and bam, it pounces them all over again. Until eventually, it is much time. Listen, that is the enemy tactics in your life and in my life. And maybe you're going through it right now. The enemy is just bopping you up one side of your head, knocking you down, pulling you down, and you're just trying to get up again, and he, and he knocks you back down again. And the whole idea is that, that he wants you to stay still. He wants you to not evangelize, not study God's Word, not take a step of faith, because the minute you do, bam, I mean, the other side of your head is going to come against you. And this is true. Satan doesn't want to, to see you used in bringing others to Christ or helping them grow in the Lord. So that's why when people really get serious about their walk with the Lord and growing in the Lord and serving the Lord and bringing others to Christ, you can count on harassment. It's going to come. You can count on being attacked. But listen, don't think for a moment that if you want to avoid being attacked and you stop growing in the Lord and you stop seeking to make a difference or an impact in a person's life, that that the devil is going to leave you alone. He's not. He wants you to think so. But understand, even those who live complacent lives are still attacked. It's just more subtle as He begins to pull you away from fellowship and pulls you away from God's Word and, 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 and introduce compromise and carnality in your life. That's why Peter says, be sober, be vigilant, resisting the enemy, and you'll be successful. James puts it this way in James 4, verse 6 and 7. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Listen, because pride is Satan's greatest sin. It's one of his chief weapons in his warfare against the saints and against the Savior. Yet God wants us to be humble. Satan wants us to be proud. So when you and I resist that prideful attitude, we're resisting the devil. And the Bible says he's got to flee. Jonathan Edwards said, The best protection one can have from the devil and his schemes is a humble heart. I like that. Verse 9, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Resist him, Peter says. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Listen, he can be resisted. How? Peter says, by being steadfast in the faith. Notice the definite article there, the the word the in verse 9. Resist him steadfast in the faith. He doesn't say resist them in faith. He's not talking about your faith. He's not talking about our faith. It's a faith which is this. It's the truth that's found in God's Word. It's a truth embodied in the Scripture. That's the faith. Jude chapter 1, which is only one chapter, verse 3, Jude said this, Contend earnestly for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. Again, contend earnestly for the faith. He was speaking about the body of truth that has been passed down by the Holy Spirit in the written Word of God. Think about this. How did Jesus respond to the devil's assault there as he was tempted in the wilderness? He used the word of God three times. He said, it is written. Matthew 4, 4. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, 7. It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Matthew four ten. Uh, Jesus away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, can I just say, you gotta know what is written before you can say it is written? That's why Christians need to know their Bibles. Otherwise, we're just sitting ducks for the enemies. No, we get attacked. Oh, okay, what was that verse? Uh, God helps those who help themselves. Oh, wait, that's not in the Bible. Uh, uh, cleanliness is next to godliness. Uh, no, that's not in there either. How about this? Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4 7, that's in the Bible. That's written. That's what you can do. Listen, I believe that, that ignorance of God's Word is at an all-time high. And as a result, Christians are being knocked down, batted down, beat up over and over again, and attacked like never before. Because many don't know the truth of God that sets us free, or they know some truth, or they know half-truth, and we end up walking around in a shameful state, constantly aroused by our enemy, and embarrassed because we don't have the answers. But if you take the time to know the truth of God's Word, the Bible says, if the truth sets you free, then you're free indeed. But if we prepare ourselves with the Word of God, if we resist Him, if we submit to one another, humble ourselves and put aside any pride in our lives, then we can look forward to our future with great hope and anticipation. And that brings us to our final point. Number three, hope. There's hope for the harassed. Look at verses 10 and 11. But may the God of all grace, who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, we may be suffering in this present time, but it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that would be revealed in us. Even after Peter's failures, remember denying the Lord three times, Satan trying to to sift Peter like wheat, uh, devour him like a lion, Jesus perfected, established, strengthened and settled Peter, and He'll do the same for you and for me. Listen, Peter served the Lord the rest of his earthly life faithfully until he was cruelly crucified upside down as a martyr. Now, guess what? He's perfected. He's finished his race. He's, he's run his course. And now he's settled, he's strengthened, he's in heaven. Listen, that's our hope as well. No matter how much we are harassed in this life by the enemy, he ultimately is defeated, and we ultimately are the victors. Why? Because our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's what Christ has done for us. Why were we yet sinners? Christ died for us. I love verse 11 here. This big, burly fisherman just burst out in praise. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Just, just, just thrilled. Why? Because Peter knew what the outcome of his life would be, he knew where he would be with the Savior one day. And listen, if you don't have the hope of heaven this morning, the assurance that when you die you'll spend eternity with Christ, can I encourage you not to leave here without surrendering your life to Him? Turn to Jesus Christ today. Finally, let's close out these verses this morning as Peter closes out this letter. Look at verse 12. He sends his regard to Silvanus, our faithful brothers, I consider him. I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greet you, and so does Mark, my son. Sylvanus is sometimes referred to as, as Silas. He was often, often the traveling companion with Paul, uh, Apostle Paul. Mark is probably John Mark, you know, the guy that kind of, you know, wimped out on the first mission trip and then eventually got his act together and became a valued assistant. And then the place Babylon is not the Babylon by the Euphrates River. That was not really a significant city at the time that Peter wrote this. The Christians at that time in Rome uh, at that time, called Rome Babylon, and they also referred to the entire you know world system as Babylon. Then in verse 14, Peter says, Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's why first century believers greeted one another with a kiss kiss of love. You know, men kiss a man, women kiss a woman, but I say a good handshake is good enough. <laughs> a holy hug, you know, that's okay, you know. Then I want to notice two more things before we close that's buried in these closing verses, the words grace and peace. Verse 10, The God of all grace who called us to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus. And verse 14, Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Let me just tell you what this tells me. You'll not automatically enjoy God's grace and peace unless you know where to find it. uh, Both verses tell us it's in and by Christ Jesus Our Lord, the grace and the peace depend upon who you know. Do you know Jesus Christ this morning? Are you having a relationship with God through His Son? It's not automatic. You don't just enjoy these things just because you're alive. You know, a week ago, Thursday, um, I flew out to California and I attended a a Catholic funeral for a very precious woman who loved God and I had known since I was a small child. And, And going to the funeral and seeing all the people I grew up with brought back so many memories. But the the service itself, you know, brought back a lot of memories about the false doctrine of salvation taught within the Catholic Church. I was reminded as I walked in and listened to the priest speak and and the prayers being offered that the only condition for entrance into heaven according to the Catholic Church is that you are baptized in the Catholic Church. Basically, all you had to do was be born and hope your parents baptized you as a baby, and then you can live any way you want, make any choices you want, but at the end, as long as you're baptized, you'll make it into heaven. And I thought, and I've thought about this before, how sad that the leadership in the Catholic Church will have to answer for the thousands, if not millions upon millions, uh, who base their salvation on that false doctrine to save them. Listen, you don't get to heaven just by being baptized. You get to heaven by being born again. Baptism is just an outward sign of what's taking place in your heart. Jesus said in John 3, 3, very clearly, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Listen, heaven is uh, exclusive. And if you haven't received the invitation, I want to give it to you this morning as we close. Come to Jesus Christ today. Repent of your sin. Give your life to Him. But it takes coming to Him humbly saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've blown it. I don't have it all together. And I need your grace and I need your forgiveness. You come to Christ this morning and He will forgive you. He'll give you the strength against the harassment that you'll receive and He'll give you the hope of heaven. Again, if that's your desire, come up to us after service. The elders will be up front. We'd love to pray with you and give you a Bible and let you know what it means to follow Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the grace that you've shown us, Lord God. And Lord, as we've learned this morning, Lord, teach us to put down pride. Anything that would exalt ourselves, Lord, help us to resist that, Lord, and put others more better more better, Lord, better than ourselves, Lord God, to, to, to seek others' well-being over ourselves. Lord, help us not to have that spiritual pride that, that tears people down, but Lord, we can help draw people to You. That's our desire. And Lord, as we're harassed by our enemy, we know that greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world. Help us to stand firm by the power of Your Holy Spirit in resisting temptation, Lord. Knowing that when we resist the devil, he must flee. We thank You for that, God. We thank You for the hope that You've given us for heaven, Lord, that You will perfect All things in our life, Lord, as we arrive in heaven, Lord, it'll all be over. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more despair. Thank you for that. Thank you for your love and grace. And Father, I do pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their hearts to you, they're yet to be born again, Lord, that they would not leave here without making that commitment today. Thank you for our time together. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll do one last song together.